Welcome everyone to Podcast Against Disease. I am Natalie Fodiatis and with me today is our guest, Dr. Jeffrey Janofsky. Jeffrey, if you could please introduce yourself. Sure. So I'm Jeff Janofsky. I'm a psychiatrist. I work primarily at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I practice both general psychiatry, meaning I take care of patients. I ran an inpatient unit for many years and now I'm practicing mostly outpatient psychiatry. I'm also a forensic psychiatrist, which means I subspecialize in that area. And forensic just means legal. So forensic psychiatrists work at the intersection between psychiatry and law, things like the insanity defense, prediction of dangerousness. But for purposes today and for what I do at Hopkins, I supervise the civil commitment hearings and help the physicians decide when patients need to come into the hospital involuntarily. Okay. And so if we could explore that topic a little bit more involuntary commitment. If I understand, it's a little bit different state by state. Yeah. So the, the rules for involuntary commitment vary state by state. But you know, before we talk about that, maybe we should talk about voluntary commitment okay. or voluntary admission. So the vast majority of patients come into the hospital voluntarily. They're evaluated by mental health professionals. The mental health professional recommends admission and the patient agrees to it. In Maryland and most states, that requires a signed voluntary admission agreement. And one of the things the psychiatrist has to assess, other than the patient's non-coerced voluntary acceptance of admission, is whether the patient has the mental capacity to understand a voluntary admission agreement. And again, the vast majority of patients meet those criteria are voluntarily admitted, agree with admission, agree with discharge, and there's no legal or court involvement at all. A small number of patients either lack capacity to understand a voluntary admission agreement or actively refuse admission. And in Maryland, in order to be admitted under those circumstances, there's a process involved called involuntary certification or involuntary commitment where doctors have to evaluate the person, have to attest five criteria, including primarily that the patient has a mental disorder that can be treated in a patient unit. And in Maryland, also, you have to show that the patient would be a danger to themselves or others if released from the hospital. Okay. And what are some of the ways that psychiatrists can ascertain whether someone will be a danger to themselves or others? Or what are some of the the mental illnesses or disorders that people typically have? Well, theoretically, under Maryland law, it can be any mental disorder other than um, intellectual disability, which used to be called mental retardation, or antisocial personality disorder. But any other listed diagnosis can theoretically be a mental disorder where someone could be involuntarily admitted. But in general, It's usually people who suffer from psychotic disorders like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder with psychosis or major depression with psychosis or without psychosis if the person's suicidal. Those are the most frequent diagnoses. So the way you do it is like any other clinical evaluation. Let's say the person was brought into the emergency room. You'd evaluate the person, look at past records if they're available, talk to collateral informants like family members and then decide whether the person has a mental illness that needs treatment in the hospital and whether they'd be a danger to the self or others if released. Now, I think we mentioned earlier that civil commitment criteria varies from state to state. Maryland has a very broad definition of dangerousness. It just says danger to self or others, and that's broadly interpreted to mean danger to self. Maybe they're at suicide risk. Maybe they can't manage themselves safely in the community because they can't safely perform their activities of daily living. 
maybe they're at danger of harming others. All those criteria can, those factors can be used. Other states require more specific dangerousness, like overt acts of dangerousness occurring within a couple of days of the hospitalization. But Maryland, again, Maryland's definition is pretty broad. Okay. And those situations, which can be very difficult for, for friends and family members yes. if, they're, if, they're, if they're present in the, the old person's life, what advice would you give to those people when they're seeing that their loved one is clearly struggling and yeah. needs more help than they're currently getting? Yeah, so if the person's in treatment, the best thing you can do is you can contact the patient's treater, their psychiatrist or therapist. Now, under Maryland law and actually under federal law, the psychiatrist or therapist can't divulge information unless the patient agrees to it. But the therapist or mental health professional can always listen to what you have to say, and they should. So if you're calling about a concern, the standard of care really requires the therapist or doctor to listen. Now, they also can't tell you what's happening, again, unless the patient agrees. But the information that you can provide, the treater can be very helpful. If the patient's not in treatment, you can try to persuade them to come to their closest emergency room. So all of the major hospitals, at least in the metropolitan areas, have mental health professionals on call in addition to the emergency room doctors who could evaluate the person. But if you can't get the patient to come into the emergency room, Maryland, like many other states, has something called an emergency petition procedure, where you as a family member can go to a district court judge, testify without the person present what your concerns are. You actually fill out a form, testify before the judge, and if the judge agrees that there's a possibility that the person might be a danger to themselves or others, they sign an order, the judge hands the order to the police, and the police come and bring the patient to the closest emergency room. So that's one way of doing it. If you're in a major metropolitan area, there are also mobile treatment programs or other providers that you can call. But the default is to go to the district court and get what's called an emergency petition in Maryland. And again, other states have similar procedures in place. In the emergency room, they're going to be evaluated. If they need treatment in an inpatient facility, hopefully the treaters in the ER can persuade the person to come into the hospital. And if they can't, you have the, the emergency involuntary admission process. If a person is involuntarily admitted to the hospital, they're initially on what's called observation status. They're on the unit. They're being evaluated on a daily basis by the mental health team. If they agree to treatment and get better, they can, they can convert their involuntary admission to a voluntary admission if they so choose. And that's something we advocate doing. We don't want people going to involuntary commitment hearing if they are willing to come in voluntarily. But if they're not getting better or if they're refusing treatment, within 10 days without an agreed extension or within 17 days with an agreed extension, they'll have a hearing. At the hearing, they'll go before an administrative law judge. An administrative law judge is an independent person that the state of Maryland uses to adjudicate these hearings as well as other kinds of hearings. The, the hospital presents its case, and what the hospital is doing is informing the court what or the judge what they believe is in the patient's best interest, and also having to prove the criteria for involuntary admission, like they have a mental disorder, they're dangerous, and they need treatment. The patient gets represented by a public defender. So there is a public defender's office in Maryland, a, a mental health division, and their sole function, or one of their major functions, is to represent patients at the hearing. And the public defender's role in this is to represent the patient's stated interest, uh, no matter it might not be what the patient's best interest is. 
The patient's stated interest as in what the patient... What the patient wants. Okay. If the patient wants to leave even though family members and the doctors believe it's not in their best interest, the public defender's office advocates for that. And that's how it should be because we do not want patients to be involuntarily admitted with their civil rights being violated. So they have a voice. The public defender is going to express that voice at the hearing. And then the judge makes a decision in Maryland by clear and convincing evidence, which is a fairly high legal standard. If the hospital's met its burden of proof, the elements of civil commitment, the patient then gets committed as an involuntary patient. And in Maryland, the commitment is for up to six months. That may be the longest civil commitment period in the United States. Most civil commitment statutes in other states are for shorter periods. Almost no no one stays in the hospital for six months. Uh, Most patients get better quite soon and are released, and it's up to the doctors to release the patient. There's no further hearing necessary. Now, there's another part of the process, too. Treatment for most mental disorders requires psychotropic medicine. Sometimes patients refuse that medicine, and there's a separate process called a clinical review panel in Maryland that after various due process safeguards, including a possible hearing before an administrative law judge, where a separate decision can be made to force medications on a patient who doesn't want them. Those are much less frequent than civil commitment hearings, so civil commitment is infrequent, and forced med panels are even less frequent because generally, under most circumstances, the patient can be persuaded to go along with the treatment team, take their medicines, and be released. Okay. And just backing up a little bit to that initial court hearing that the family member or friend, does it have to be a family member or could it also be a friend? An emergency petition, it can be anyone. Okay. So literally anyone can, can go to court and initiate an emergency petition. It could be a friend, family member, boss, a coworker, anyone can do it. Now I should say that there are certain designated individuals that don't need to, to go before a judge. They can sign the petition themselves, hand it to a police officer, and the patient can be brought in. And those include various mental health professionals. The police can also sign the document themselves if they observe behavior instead of arresting the person, can divert them to the mental health system. And that's a good thing because mm-hmm. we want to. that's a way to avoid arrest for patients that the police come in contact with in the community that are clearly mentally ill. And instead of arresting them and taking to the jail, they can be brought to the emergency room and receive treatment. Okay. So in those cases where there is not a professional who is qualified to immediately, who can kind of bypass that court hearing, yes. how long does that process take? If, if I'm concerned for a friend and, or a family member and I, I want to make a, an emergency petition, how long does that whole process take? And then what kind of evidence do I need to bring with me since the person doesn't actually need to be present in court? Right. So you don't have to bring anything with you, but you have to fill out a form that's called the actual emergency petition form, and you're basically describing the person's behavior. You're also going to testify in court. In in Maryland, that's before a district court judge. Most counties, not all, have district court judges available for these things 24-7, but clearly they're going to be available during regular work days and business hours. Okay. You just walk into court, let them know what the problem is, and they'll get you to see a judge that day. Okay. So it's, it's quite fast. Yeah, it's designed that way. Okay. And then, so we've already mentioned that the vast majority of people with mental illness voluntarily seek treatment. Well, I'm not sure the vast majority voluntarily seek treatment, but the vast majority of people that are admitted to inpatient facilities are as voluntary patients. Okay. Okay. Because the vast majority of patients don't require inpatient treatment. Most of them are in outpatient treatment. And 
many patients will never be admitted as an inpatient because their illness isn't severe enough. So right. inpatient treatment is reserved for patients that are severely ill that require an inpatient setting. Right, okay. And we've touched on this a little bit in terms of the, the public defender serving the interest of the patient, but what assurances could you give to family members or friends or, or general public who are uncertain about involuntary commitment or people who are who kind of forced into a situation against their will, especially considering some of the historical situations that we've had where people's rights have really been violated. Prior to the 70s, patients could be forced into treatment merely because someone attested they needed treatment. There were, unfortunately, incidents of patients being forced into the hospital that didn't need to be there. And then laws got rewritten over time from the 70s. So now every state not only requires a mental disorder diagnosis and need for treatment, but some proof of dangerousness or grave disability in order to be admitted. You know, there's a spectrum of thought about this. Uh, Some advocates think that's a bad thing, that that means that people who need treatment aren't getting it because they're not dangerous, but they're also not functional. Other people on the other side think probably that we civilly commit too many people. I don't think that's true. And I think right now we're in a good balance, in my opinion, where we have, at least in Maryland, a broad civil commitment law. We have the ability to admit people who need treatment, but we're also not admitting patients, at least involuntarily, uh, who can safely manage themselves in the community, even though their family members, for example, or friends, might believe they are not functioning at optimal capacity. In other words, people have the right to make these decisions themselves. Okay. So the... I don't know if this is the sole criteria, but it seems to be the main criteria for taking away that right is if someone is determined to be a danger to themselves or others. Well, it's having a mental disorder. So you can't, you know, most dangerous people don't have mental disorders. So, for example, the vast majority of people that commit criminal acts are not mentally ill. They do it because they're evil (laughs) or bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, People with mental illness may become dangerous to themselves or others due to their mental illness. But again, most people with mental illness aren't dangerous. And statistically, if a a mentally disordered person is dangerous to others, it's generally towards family members. The family members are most at risk of harm from Is that because they're the primary caretakers or the ones who are mostly involved in their lives? I don't know why, but it's just a statistical fact, clear fact. The vast majority of assaults by mentally ill persons who are engaging in that kind of behavior because they're mentally ill or against family members or... Or, 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 or caregivers. Yeah. And then by far the, the biggest number of people that are civilly committed are people that are dangerous to self because of suicidal thoughts, so severe depression, inability to care for self. Right. And, and on that note, there seems to be a little bit of a gray area, perhaps in practice, between, and you mentioned before that there are some people who would prefer to have their loved ones or their family and friends in treatment when they're not in treatment because the patient doesn't choose to be in treatment. And in instances like that where someone is, you know, is, is not living a full life or you know, isn't, isn't necessarily capable of living on their own, but they're not quite demonstrating enough self-harm or enough criteria to be put into that process. What kind of resources are available for people to to help get their loved ones in treatment? So 
I'm a big believer in persuasion. So, you know, it's possible uh, to try to get a treatment plan in place that they'll agree to. So, in, earlier in my career, I and other colleagues at Hopkins started what's now called ACT, but had no name then. It's essentially intensive outpatient treatment where we went out and visited patients in their home. We were the first group to do it in an urban area. It had previously been done in Wisconsin. ACTS? ACT, assertive community treatment. And from that model uh, has grown various methods of trying to persuade patients to come in. So you could have what's called case management, where people phone clients to try to bring them in. ACT teams actually go out to patients' homes. So more treatment options that are available. They're also club programs that these are not associated with the mainstream mental health community, but they're available for people who just want to walk in, who want to talk to other folks that may be suffering from mental illness. So they're various, but persuasion, just trying to help the person as best they can as a clinician, trying to persuade people to come into treatment is what we can do. And then, if that doesn't work and the patient becomes dangerous, we have more coercive methods, and that's what involuntary commitment and emergency petition is. Obviously, the patient is disagreeing, and it's it's state coercion, but in the sense, in a good sense, and that we've decided as a society that some people need to be uh, taken into hospital against their will because they're suffering from an illness and need treatment, and they're dangerous without it. But we limited it that we don't we don't allow coercion for non-dangerous people. Right. Okay. It's persuasion. Right. And have you, in your experience, encountered situations where a family might be fractured in their, in their belief about what the best course of treatment is? Sure. And then, you, you know, you try your best to work with a family. One of the problems we have as mental health care providers is that the patient controls the information going out. So uh, if the patient doesn't allow us to talk to family members, we can unless it's an emergency. But we can always listen to family, okay? So we, we can always listen. So you can always pick, you should, if you have a good clinician working with your patient, you should, they should be willing to listen to what you have to say. Okay. And if I'm a good clinician, I'm going to tell my patient, I'm not going to keep it a secret from the patient. I'm going to tell them what they said. And I'm going to say, what do you think? You know, how can we use this information to improve your treatment? Okay. And... We've already talked about some of the the ethical issues that are surrounding involuntary commitment and forced medication, but can we address the stigma that surrounds mental illness in general and how can we ensure as as a society, how can we work to make people who suffer from mental illness safer themselves as well as make others around them safer whether in, in the hospital or out in the general community. Well, I think we can have podcasts like this where we talk about what the facts are, for example, you know, that most people with mental illness are not dangerous, either themselves or others, that most people with mental illness accept treatment or are doing as best they can in the community. You know, unfortunately, you know, you have police procedural shows that, you know, f- focus on crazed people doing bad things. And those, those things do happen because I'm a forensic psychiatrist and I do criminal work and I've seen those. Uh, but that, again, that's not what we're talking here today. That those cases are extremely rare. The vast majority of people with who suffer from illness are safe, accept treatment, decide for themselves what they want, and go on with their lives. You know, and have you know can't, can't function. Some can't function. Uh, some can't function even with treatment. So sometimes these illnesses can 
really interrupt a person's life. Typically, an illness like schizophrenia would do that. Many people with schizophrenia can function. Some can function with support. There's all kinds of rehabilitation programs. Most need medicine uh, to help with the what we call the positive symptoms of illness, like hallucinations and delusions. But, so there's a vast spectrum of functionality, just like with physical illness. There's a vast spectrum of uh, how physical illnesses affect functional capacity. So they're really no different. It's, it's just that over the course of history, people with mental illness have been stigmatized. And one of our jobs as psychiatrists or mental health treatment providers is to reduce stigma. I guess by talking like we're talking today. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much for coming in. It is a, an important issue to share with the general public. I guess another question that, that just came to my mind is for, for the few people who are psychotic, actively psychotic yes. in public, and they're behaving in a way that is just aberrant and, you know, not necessarily violent, but right. just a little bit odd and disconcerting. What kind of advice would you give to, you know, anyone who's who's on the street who witnesses this and, you know, they feel a little uncomfortable because it is a little bit uncomfortable yeah. that might help make someone realize, okay, like this this isn't necessarily something they need to be afraid of, or this isn't necessarily something that I should judge, or, or it is something that I should judge. Well, I mean, there are people on the street that behave aberrantly for a variety of reasons. Some people behave aberrantly because they're engaged in criminal activity. Some people behave aberrantly because they're suffering from mental illness. I see a lot of people now with the... Uh, you know, talking to their cell phones with their, you know, they look like they're talking <laughs> it to themselves. It looks like they're, they're talking to themselves. They walk into polls because they're looking <laughs> at their device. They probably don't have a mental illness, but they're so focused on their, you know, iPhone that they, they walk into a light pole. I've literally seen that happen multiple times. <laughs> right. So, so where are people walking into the street? People are, you know, how people behave in public. And uh, I, I don't know how to answer the question. You, you shouldn't go up and do a clinical examination, but if someone is in distress, like they're, de you know, it's hot out. It's going to be 90 degrees today. And if you see somebody collapsed on the street, you pick up the phone and call 911. So if you're really worried about someone, you can activate the uh, medical system and ask for an ambulance, the police, and they'll come out and interview the person. And these are the professionals that deal with these folks. So, you know, be a nice citizen. And if you're worried about someone, get them help. But that's what 911's for. Okay. Uh, or you can, you know, if you're, you can get them a you know, bottle of water, offer it to them, a sandwich. You know, stuff like that. Okay. That's, that's definitely, I think we should all encourage people to be good citizens and, yep. and compassionate towards others and recognize that not everyone has had the same life or opportunities as we have. And there might be a number of reasons why they're in the situation that they're in. We definitely want to, as much as we possibly can, we want to help people flourish and reach their full potentials. Over the course of your career, what would you say have been some of the gains that we've made from a, a public standpoint in terms of promoting positive mental health and, and self-care and, and trying to proactively prevent some of the, the issues that people could have? So I think the most important, well, I'm not sure if this is the most important thing, but clearly the development of medications that treat major mental illness have improved over the years. So when I first started, we had the, quote, older antipsychotic medicines. You have to remember that the first available treatment for major mental illness was became only available in 1957 or 59, Thorazine. Before that, there were no treatments, pharmacologic treatments for major mental illness. Wow. We just had sedatives. So that's hence the reason that you know the mental hospitals were overflowing right. with people. 
and Thorazine was the first drug. There was a development of what we call the older antipsychotics. And then in, in my career, I've seen the development of more modern antipsychotic medicines as well as better antidepressants, other better treatments. So the science and pharmacology is very important, extremely important for the treatment of major mental illness. But we've also had this expansion of programs other than traditional outpatient treatment for people with major mental illness, programs that were put in place to allow the more people with more severe symptoms to be safely managed in the community, like the ACT team, as I talked about before, rehabilitation programs, so those are all good. The problem is, is that most of them are concentrated in cities, they're expensive, they're restricted, and unless you have good funding, you know, state funding, they may not be available for all people. They are available in Baltimore and the major counties in Maryland, so we're, Maryland's pretty good about this, but some states are very bad. And we can get into the political discussions about why that is, but we won't do that today. <laughs> okay. Well, I, uh, hopefully this question doesn't veer too far into that realm, but as you just mentioned, it sounds like Maryland is pretty good about providing resources yeah. to, to care for, for mental health. I've heard that in some other states, the, the largest mental health facility are prisons. Yeah, so, so remember, in order to get into a jail or a prison, you have to have committed a criminal act. So some people commit criminal acts and they get admitted to a jail because that's where you go first, and it turns out they're severely mentally ill. And then the question is, what happens to those people? So this is a totally different than what we're talking about. So many states have diversion programs after arrest. Maryland does, have mental health courts, et cetera, where the idea is to identify people who are in jail usually with less serious crimes who've been arrested, where the police officer, for whatever reason, didn't divert them with an emergency petition to the emergency room, but it arrested them. But then in jail, a few days later, it's obvious they have a mental disorder. So the idea is to treat them in jail and divert them as quickly as possible out of the criminal justice system with supervision so they won't commit another crime. But not all states have stuff like that. Not all states are funded. It's all about money because it takes money to provide treatment. It's not free. Right. Okay. Is there is there anything? Um... No, I think we're I think we're okay. We haven't talked about substance use and how it can mimic a mental disorder. That's probably too big a topic here. Okay. Uh, and we haven't talked about outpatient commitment, but we don't have that. We have a very small pilot project in Maryland. The problem with patients who are refusing medicine who need it. So the only way in a traditional system to force medications is after an inpatient civil commitment. And after a separate hearing, we're determining the medicines. But the problem with all that is once the person leaves the hospital, there's no way to enforce them taking medicines. So some states have developed what's called outpatient commitment with certain criteria to legally enforce the ability to give medicines to patients once they're released from the hospital. Maryland has a small pilot project about that in place, but it's not really active. Okay. And there's argue, there's big arguments about how outpatient commitment should work or whether we should even use it. Okay. Do injectable psychotic medicines yeah, so, play a part in yeah, that? Yeah, so again, most so we have antipsychotic medications that are long-acting injectable medicines and they so patients can receive them once every 2 weeks or 4 weeks, but again, most patients who take them take them voluntarily. It's right. not coercive and they take them because because they've learned over the course of their illness that they forget to take their medicine, they get sick, so they want to avoid it. 
So we have, you know, in our, I work in the Hopkins Community Psychiatry Program, and we have a full-time nurse, and one of her jobs is to administer intramuscular medicines for the patients who need it. And there's scores of patients who come in for those medicines. And again, it's voluntary. Mm-hmm. They, they, they've have had an informed consent discussion with me about whether they want that, and they've chosen it, and they take it, and they're quite happy. Okay. And I would imagine that would remove some of the barriers to treatment for many people, not only with psychotic illnesses, with other... Well, unfortunately, the long-acting medicines are only for psychotic illnesses. Oh, okay. Illnesses. Yeah, that, yeah, we don't have long-acting medicines for depression, Okay. Or, um, but it's for psychotic illnesses, and, and it's very useful. Is resistance to taking medication is that how significant of a barrier is that to treatment so i'm not so some people don't like to take pills some people forget it's very hard to take medicines every day i mean if you're a diabetic you have to take a shot a couple times it's hard to do that Mm -hmm. so the you know they have the same problem in diabetes management so they've initiated case management you know patients come in on a regular basis sometimes several times a week to help them for the patients who have trouble with that to help them manage the same thing in psychiatry it's a chronic mental illnesses or chronic illnesses and it's very hard, you know, to take a medicine every day for the rest of your life. So we have to put things in place to help patients do that. Absolutely. Are there any sort of good stories or success stories that you've seen over the course of your career? Oh, yeah. I mean, we have very effective treatments. So patients, when I was an inpatient psychiatrist, patients would come in on an emergency petition, involuntarily admitted. They're willing to take medicines, and they get better quite rapidly. So their symptoms go away, their mood stabilizes, we get them out of the hospital in a couple of weeks. So, yeah, I mean, the vast majority of what we do is successful. That's why I come in and do it every day. When the newer medications came into being, so I was around when a medication called Clozeril or Clozapine first came into being, and Clozeril was a new type of medication that we now reserve for patients who don't respond to other medications because it has serious side effects. But it came out as a new drug. And I remember I was working in our mobile treatment program and there was a patient, a young man, who did not respond at all to any of the medicines we had. He was quite ill. He came into treatment regularly. We came to get him, but he was in a world to himself. And we started him on Clozeril and it was like an awakening. Wow. You know, essentially, he, his symptoms remitted. He totally changed person. He got his life back. So, you know, those were the stories that we had when those medications came out or when some of the other newer medications came out. So it's quite a great job being a psychiatrist. Absolutely. (laughs) That's that's very exciting. Are there still more medications in development or is that something that... That's not something I do. I know know these are major focuses. So there's major focus on new antipsychotics, new antidepressants, new mood stabilizers new anti-anxiety medicines that are not addictive. They're all in the pipeline. But a human research for drugs is a huge financial undertaking. You know, we're talking millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. So not my area, but thank God for the people to do it. You know? Right. Yeah. And, and hopefully we have more exciting advances to look forward to in the future and yeah. other situations like that young man for people who previously hadn't found something that really worked for them could be on the horizon. Right. Great. Well, Dr. Janowski, thank you very much for joining us today. It was very helpful and illuminating, and it was great to have you on the show. You're quite welcome. Pleasure to be here.